This evening we continue our study through our terms of communion, which form our constitution for the church. And we are looking at the second term of communion, which reads as follows, that the whole doctrine of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms larger and shorter are agreeable unto and founded upon the scriptures. Last time we met, we began considering the doctrinal teaching of the Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. And we'll continue that this evening. And as I mentioned last time, we're not going necessarily chapter by chapter through the Confession of Faith, but hitting the highlights. And so we come this evening, and I had given a certain order, and I think that whatever point we had reached last, it was the eighth point, and we come now, I believe, to the ninth point. And the ninth point that I would like to make concerning the teaching of the Confession and Catechisms is that it teaches the free offer of the Gospel. The free offer of the Gospel. Let me simply summarize uh, the teaching uh, contained therein. God the Father, out of His unbounded love, has on the grounds of the infinite sufficiency of Christ's death and sacrifice, made a free offer of Christ as an all-sufficient Savior unto sinners of mankind, all those who are lost, God, and who will hear and respond. This offer goes to everyone to repent and believe the gospel. As the gospel goes forth through the minister, he does not say, to you who are elect, believe the gospel. But the offer goes out to all who will hear and believe. You will receive forgiveness of sins, pardon, eternal life. And so there is no discrimination made on the on the proclamation of the gospel. It goes to all who will hear. And to all who will hear and to all who will believe, the gospel states, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we need to make that particular um, uh, distinction that this is an outward call. It is an, a general call, an outward call to every creature. You remember the, the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16 says, Christ to, says to his disciples, preach the gospel to every creature. And so don't make any distinction as to who you're to preach the gospel to. Go and preach to all who will hear. And this is the, the nature of the free offer of the gospel. The promise to all who believe they will receive eternal life. It's similar to the parable that we find in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, where a king uh, had a wedding feast for his son and the Lord tells in this parable that the king sent 
to certain people to attend the wedding. But they gave all kinds of excuses as to why they couldn't come. And when he sent his servants to invite them, they beat some of them. This type of treatment of the of the, the messengers who were sent to them. And so he says to his servants, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. As many as will hear, as many as will come in, compel them, proclaim to them this particular promise to come in and enjoy uh, fellowship uh, with the king. And and this is the uh, essence of the free offer of the gospel. And uh, really, this forms, as you think about it, the basis for a very firm assurance of salvation. Because the promise goes out to believe the gospel, to believe that Christ is sufficient to forgive your sins. That Christ will grant pardon if you believe that this becomes the promise and the basis for our assurance, for salvation. We trust in the fact that God is faithful to keep his promises. And appealing to simply one passage, Romans chapter 4, verse 21 The Apostle Paul says this, speaking of Abraham, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And so the free offer of the gospel states, do you believe God is able to forgive. Do you believe God will keep his promise that all who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved? And so the promise becomes, and the basis of the promise is in Christ's and God's trustworthiness to keep his word. And this is a firm foundation upon which to have assurance. Will God keep his word or not? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope of eternal salvation? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins that you might that you might inherit eternal life? If you lay claim to that promise, if you believe that particular promise, that's a promise from God. That is a firm foundation for again assurance of faith. Now, we move from that particular doctrine of the free offer of the gospel to the next. And we're actually looking this evening at things that pertain to the gospel, pertain to the application of redemption to the hearts and lives of of God's people. And so the second uh, point we want to cover this evening is point number 10 in our in our list is that of effectual calling whereas the free offer is an outward call is a general call effectual calling is an inward call and a special call 
all of those who respond to the effectual call are in fact saved. Not all of those who hear the, the outward call or the general call of the gospel are saved. But those who respond are those who are actually efficaciously called, effectually called by God. Now, in this particular aspect of the call, we, we answer the question, why do some people who hear the gospel believe it? And why do others who hear the gospel not believe it? The same gospel promise goes out to all. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why do some believe it? Why do some embrace Christ and his promise and others not? Well, it's due to the effectual call of God. And the effectual call, the chapter on the effectual call is chapter 10 of the Confession of Faith. And let me read the first two paragraphs from the Confession of Faith on this subject. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them an heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. And then the second paragraph. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Now, in this doctrine of the effectual call, let me simply note uh, a couple items. This presupposes that all men are dead in trespasses and sins. And that they cannot, even though the, the word of God and the promise goes out to all who believe that they will be saved, it nevertheless presupposes that all men by nature are dead in their trespasses and sins and 
cannot of themselves respond to the gospel apart from the work of the Holy Spirit giving to them, as we have seen here, giving to them a mind and a heart and a will to respond. Giving to them even faith to believe and embrace Jesus Christ. Just as much as Lazarus could not respond to Jesus Christ or could not respond by believing uh, before having been raised from the dead, uh, he could not of his own will respond and say, I will be raised from the dead. I will believe that I can be raised from the dead. He had to be given life before he could respond. And so in being given life by God, he then could respond to the call of Jesus Christ. And so, likewise, in the life of all of those who come to faith, that this must precede, the effectual calling must precede the actual response to the gospel. <clears throat> and so, this doctrine of the effectual call condemns uh, all forms of Arminianism, which teach that faith proceeds regeneration. That you must believe in order to have life from God. Now, the, the, the doctrine of effectual calling says to the contrary, you cannot believe you cannot embrace Christ until you are made alive, until you are given, your will is renewed and you are given uh, the mind to understand and to believe. And so that is the, the doctrine taught concerning the effectual call and distinguishing that from the the outward general call of the free offer of the gospel to all who will believe. Now, again, the free offer of the gospel, just to make one other distinction, is, is a part of the revealed will of God that that's what we are commanded to do because we are not given insight into who God's elect are or are not. And so, therefore... Because we don't have and God does not reveal to us that we are to proclaim a Savior who is sufficient for all men to believe. He's sufficient. He, uh, his sacrifice, he would not have to die or shed any more blood on the cross or pay any more of the payment for man's sins if he were to, to save every single person who's ever lived. His sacrifice is sufficient for all men. That is why, again, because we're not given that knowledge as to who is to believe, they could appear to be the worst sinner possible. That how could God possibly save that particular person? And yet, God says, proclaim the gospel to all men in the preaching of the gospel as it goes forth. Don't withhold it 
from any. But on the other hand, the effectual calling is God's secret working. Not his outward, but his very secret working in the hearts and lives of men and women and children whom he has chosen to save from all eternity. Those whom he has predestined to save. That is his secret work within the hearts of, and lives of people. So those distinctions, hopefully you see again the distinction between the two. And again, if we have questions afterwards, we'll be glad to entertain those at that time. Moving on then to the 11th uh, doctrinal teaching, that is of justification uh, by faith. And again, justification by faith, let me simply summarize for you this particular doctrine as it is taught in our confessional standards. It is the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ as the only meritorious cause of a sinner's justification. Let me say that again. In justification by faith, the active and passive obedience of Christ, meaning his active obedience is his fulfilling all the demands of God's righteous law, not failing in any point, so that his obedience to the law fulfilled uh, everything that God requires of man. And he was doing so as the second Adam, whereas the first Adam was to fulfill all that God required of him for those whom he represented. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the terms of righteousness, all the demands of the law for those whom he represented. That's active obedience. The passive obedience of Christ has to do with Jesus Christ paying the penalty which we deserve for all of our law-breaking. In other words, not only is there the, the part of fulfilling righteousness, but also the part of paying the debt our sins de de uh, deserve. And so Jesus Christ has earned righteousness for us and he has completely satisfied all of God's holy wrath against our law-breaking. That's the passive obedience of Christ. Those two aspects of Christ's obedience, active and passive, form the only meritorious cause of our justification. God can only declare us righteous in His sight. We are only acceptable in the sight of God on the basis of Christ fulfilling both the active and passive, uh, being actively and passively obedient there as he, as he came to earth to live and die as our, as our mediator.
Now, <clears throat> you say, well, it says justification by faith alone. Where does faith enter into this, this uh, whole area? Faith is not the meritorious cause of our justification. It is the means. It is the instrumental cause, not the meritorious cause. There is no merit in our faith. There is no merit in our faith. God does not justify and declare us righteous on the basis of our faith. Our faith is simply the means by which we embrace Christ and his work, saying, I do not trust in myself. I trust in Jesus alone for my eternal salvation. And so it is an instrument. It is not the grounds. It is the means, not the basis for our justification. <clears throat> That's a very, very brief summary, but let me point out to you as the this doctrine of justification by faith alone was one of the critical doctrines uh, proclaimed by the Reformers, by Luther and Calvin and by those of the Second Reformation uh, around the time of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, this particular doctrine, justification by faith alone, is one which very clearly condemns that which is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Whereas the Romish Church teaches a justification by faith plus works. Let me, let me explain how that is the case. The Romish view of justification confuses confuses justification with sanctification whereas we believe according to the doctrine of justification by faith we believe the bible teaches that when we believe in Jesus Christ God imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we are viewed by God, reckoned by God, accounted by God as being as righteous as Jesus himself is. It is a reckoning. It is an accounting. That's what imputation means. It is different from infusion. God does not, in justification, infuse us with righteousness. He does not, uh, at that particular point, declare us to be righteous because he has infused us with righteousness, changed our nature. It is not on the basis that God changes our nature that we are declared righteous. 
that is not the basis. The basis, the ground, the meritorious cause is not ourselves, even in a transformed, regenerated state. That is not the cause. Otherwise, it would be, in fact, justification by faith plus works because we would become the cause of our own justification. Even though God changed us, he would look upon us as having been changed, that we are now a new creation and on that basis declares righteous. But that is not, that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we are justified on the basis of God infusing us with grace And because our nature is changed and transformed, God then looks upon us and declares us righteous. But you see, that shifts the whole emphasis away from the Lord Jesus Christ as being the only grounds of our salvation and righteousness. See, the scripture teaches in Romans 4 or 5, you want to look there, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is, is counted for righteousness. Notice, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, not, it does not say, but believes on him that justifieth the godly, because after we have become regenerated, if that's the basis upon which God justifies us, then it would say that God justifies the godly, because at that, at that particular point, once we're infused with, with grace and our nature is changed, if that becomes the basis, then it would be justification on the basis of our transformed nature. God would justify the godly. But it says that he justifies the ungodly. That is, by simply believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as our righteousness. Ungodly as we are, We are declared righteous on the basis of Christ alone. The question that one will inevitably run into as a difficulty, if in fact it is justification by faith plus works, whether it's on the basis of a new nature upon works that proceed from that new nature, If that's the basis, if that's the grounds for justification, then we have to again ask the question, if it's works, can we lose that justification? And if we merit it by our works in some way, by our doing in some way, by our being in some way, if that's the ground, then when is enough enough to be declared righteous? When is enough enough? 
This is the same problem that anyone who does not believe that it's only on the basis of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that we're declared righteous. It's the same problem that everybody runs into. When is enough enough? When have I worked enough? When am I good enough? When have I done enough to be declared righteous by Christ and to maintain that particular declaration? To be righteous, to be acceptable before God. Because even assuming, though it's wrong, even assuming that we are declared righteous on the basis of what God does within us, in, in infusing us with grace and changing our nature, we know that thereafter, uh, though we have been changed, yet there continues to be sin, there continues in this, in this nature, even though it's been renewed, it continues to fall, it continues to give in to temptation. What happens then? And you see, this is the whole problem with this doctrine is, is that there is no way, as we will see, that one can have assurance of salvation. Because one is never sure he's done enough. Even though he may be declared righteous by God at that point, how does he know that if I'm the standard, how do I know that I will not lose that justification? If Christ is the standard, then I know I cannot lose that justification. Because he is only and always the ground, the meritorious, meritorious cause of my justification. So some things to consider there, and this will come up again in a, as we go through some of these other doctrines this evening as well. However, let's move on from justification by faith to, to sanctification, which is another doctrine which is taught in the confessional standards. And emerging the chapters in the confession which deal with sanctification and good works. I'm merging those into basically one um, uh, topic uh, this evening. <clears throat> sanctification is defined in our shorter catechism as this. This is question 35 of the shorter catechism. It says, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. Sanctification. <clears throat> Sanctification is not an instantaneous event. It is a work of God. It is a process, a gradual process over time, whereby we are conformed to the image of Christ, whereby we put to death more and more uh, the deeds of the flesh, so that we do again become conformed to Christ's image. In all of those who are justified, it is guaranteed that they will be sanctified. There are none 
who were justified in Christ, who will not be sanctified in Christ. It is all a part of a process which we find so clearly laid out for us in Romans chapter 8, this unbreakable process of salvation, where we find verse 30, Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and that is an effectual call, that's the effectual call. Those whom God predestinated, he effectually called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And so, from beginning to end, salvation, those who are justified, will be glorified, which is that final state of man where he'll be ultimately conformed to Christ's image in body and in spirit. So the gradual process of sanctification, it's not specifically mentioned in Romans chapter 8. It mentions justified and glorified. But glorified is simply the end result of being sanctified. And so this process is guaranteed in all who are justified and declared righteous by, by God. It might be helpful to simply read what the larger catechism says in distinguishing justification from sanctification. And this is question 77 of the larger catechism. How do... Justification and sanctification differ. Where do they differ? Okay, this is what the Catechism says. Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, they're all a package and part of the salvation which God gives to his people. Yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace. That's that distinction I was making earlier. In justification, we're imputed, not infused, imputed the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, we are infused the grace of God to overcome sin in our life. Okay, let me read that again. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. Okay, in the former, that is in justification, sin is pardoned. That is, sin is forgiven in justification. In the other, that is in sanctification, sin is subdued. It's subdued. It's forgiven in justification. It's subdued and put to death in sanctification. The one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God. Justification equally frees all believers from the revenging wrath of God. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, justification delivers us from once and for all from the wrath of God. And that perfectly in this life. And they never fall into condemnation. So our justification is perfect in this life. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It is perfect. That cannot be changed. But notice, the other, that is sanctification, is neither equal in all. There are different degrees and levels. People are at different stages of sanctification. Some are sanctified more quickly than others. Some are further along in the process than others. The other, that is sanctification, is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any. Whereas in justification, it's perfect in this life. Sanctification, it is not perfect. There is no one who is without sin in this life. There is no one who is perfectly, entirely sanctified in this life, completely set free from all sin, perfect obedience to all of God's righteous and holy standards. But in sanctification, one is growing up to perfection. That's glorification. He is growing up to perfection, glorification, that's full conformity to the image of Christ. So those are distinctions that are made concerning sanctification and concerning justification. Now, the obvious result of being sanctified is that of good works that a Christian is enabled to perform good works. Whereas before, he was unable to perform any good works, anything that God would be pleased with, that God would accept. Now, having been justified, having been uh, regenerated, being sanctified, he is able to perform works which God will receive through the work of Christ. Now, let me point out to you just five, five points concerning good works. Five points concerning good works. Good works must have the right standard. What is the right standard? They must be in conformity to the Word of God. A good work must be in accordance with God's Word. It cannot violate God's Word. Someone can't say, well, I didn't do what God told me to do, but I was sincere, and therefore it is a good work. No, that's not a good work. Sincerity does not make a work a good work. It must meet the standard. God's Word, God's law. Second, a good work must have the right means. That is faith in Jesus Christ. One cannot, as I said earlier, perform a good work that does not have faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, we find in Hebrews. 
impossible to please God. You cannot do anything that God will find pleasure in apart from faith. That's Hebrews chapter 11. And then thirdly, a good work must have the right motive, and that is love for God. Not only fear out of, out of the awesomeness of God, but love for the living God. That God is, is worthy to be loved, and because He's worthy to be loved, out of, out of gratitude for Him and all that He's done and how, how uh, great the Lord is in His manifold grace to us, out of that motive of love, we then perform the works the good works that we do out of love for the Lord. Fourthly, good work has the right end, the right goal, which is the glory of God. Not to bring myself pleasure, but ultimately, even when I do it for the sake of my neighbor, it must be still to the glory of God, ultimately. Ultimately, to the glory of God. Whether, therefore, we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 And finally, a good work must have the right source. And that right source is the grace of God. It must be founded and rooted in the grace of God. Man cannot, as I said earlier, of his own will, of his own doing, uh, work up a good work. It must be something which God works within him. And so we find, for example, passages like Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, which command us on our part to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're, to, we're commanded to be active. We're to be active in working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, doing those things that God has commanded us to do. But and in obedience to God, in other words, obeying all the all of the uh, commands that God has given to us, uh, we're to be very active in obeying the Lord and all of His commandments. But we find uh, where the source is for uh, for it is God who works within you. He says, Paul says in verse thirteen, both to will and to do His good pleasure. It's God working within us both to will and to do the good pleasure of the Lord. Good works, let me, those are the five points, but let me simply say a couple more things. Good works are not meritorious. Uh, even as faith is not meritorious, faith is a good work. To believe God, to exercise faith is a good work. Like repentance is a good work. Uh, uh, those are acts of obedience to God's commands. And yet, no work of God is meritorious. 
no, I'm, let me say this, no good work which we would do on, uh, for God or toward God is meritorious. It does not earn us pardon or forgiveness. It does not earn us grace or mercy. God freely of his own uh, love grants mercy and grace and pardon for sin. And like sanctification, good works are never perfect in this life. They're never perfect in this life. They're always tainted with sin to some degree. We never can offer to God a perfectly good work. Let me find this one section in the uh, Confession. Um, this is the Confession of Faith, chapter 16 on good works, and it says this, We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and are, and are unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from the Spirit, because the, we can call them good works, they must therefore proceed from the Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. No perfection of good works in this life. But nevertheless, God receives, this is the amazing thing, God receives the works which we offer to him, even though we, and we follow these five points that I mentioned, even though there's weakness and sin mingled with even these particular points that I mentioned, the Lord receives those as, the, as Jesus Christ, through his death, through his satisf satisfaction on the cross, he purifies through his work these good works and offers to them to his Father. And so they are received by God as good works through Christ, through Christ's work, not because they are uh, perfect, not because they are sinless, untainted, in this life. Uh, in regard to uh, this, uh, let me simply say that this doctrine of good works condemns Rome's view of works of supererogation. Works of supererogation is taught by the Roman Catholic Church which teaches that one can actually do, do more than God requires. That one can actually do more than God requires in his law. And that as one does more than God requires, since he doesn't need more than what God requires, he can take the surplus, God takes the surplus of everyone, particularly saints, those who have been uh, uh, granted sainthood, he takes the surplus and he puts it into a treasury of merit 
this is according to the teaching of Rome, puts it into a treasury of merit, and that treasury of merit can be withdrawn by means of, of certain uh, things that a person will do here upon the earth. For example, indulgences at the time of the Reformation one would receive a piece of paper in exchange for a contribution of money. And this indulgence or this piece of paper would grant merit to either himself or to a loved one to get them out of purgatory quicker. And so they would be rushed along through the process that much more quickly. And so this is a doctrine, uh, this doctrine of supererogation, uh, which is contrary to what we have just stated the confession of faith teaches. <clears throat> and this doctrine of good works taught in the confessional standards also condemns the Arminian view that the unregenerate can perform works pleasing to God, as we've noted. We're going to look at two more very quickly and then we'll be finished for the evening. The uh, the 13th doctrine uh, is that of assurance of salvation, assurance of faith. That particular doctrine simply states that a Christian, one who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ, can have an infallible assurance of, uh, that he is saved, that he uh, has been declared righteous by God once and for all, that he is an heir of eternal life, that he is one of God's elect. In fact, one can have an infallible assurance of that. This doctrine teaches that. I would simply say that... that um, this doctrine is founded upon three truths taught in the scripture. It's founded upon the fact that it's grounded, I should say, in the promise of God. It's grounded in the promise of God. It's grounded as well. Uh, this assurance wells up within us as we see the inward evidence of God's grace in our life. And thirdly, the the witness of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit in our life as well. I would submit to you that, that the most basic of those three that I just mentioned is the promise aspect. Assurance of salvation is based upon a promise that God has said, and it goes back to the free offer of the gospel, that those who believe in Jesus Christ, whosoever believes, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's based upon a promise. Now, the only question in that is, if I believe and trust in Jesus alone for my salvation, will God keep his promise? Will God be faithful to his promise? And if we believe 
And again, to not believe that God will, will be faithful to his promise is in effect to say that God is a liar. And so that's absolutely fundamental. Again, if we understand that, that's absolutely fundamental in our whole coming to Christ. Why would we come to Christ? We believe he's trustworthy. We believe that he will keep his word. That is what our assurance is founded upon. And again, I, I just uh, I won't read it, but go back to Romans chapter four, verse twenty-one, about Abraham, that he believed that God would keep his promise, that God would be faithful to keep his promise. And so I just uh, emphasize that uh, that particular truth concerning assurance. It's based upon the faithfulness of God in keeping his own word and his promise. Uh, this view of assurance condemns the position of Rome and Arminianism, which teaches that it is presumptuous on our parts to be assured of salvation. They teach that it, there's no way that anybody can know that they are ultimately saved. There's no way that one can have that kind of certain assurance Maybe a probability that you are saved, but not an absolute assurance of salvation. Now, why do they believe that? Well, it stands to reason because one can never know again when enough is enough. If it is salvation by faith plus works in any way, one can never know when enough is enough. And so one is always in doubt as, as to whether he's done enough. This was, uh, this was in fact the dilemma, the, the vicious cycle that Martin Luther uh, travailed through. When is enough enough to, to be acceptable before an absolutely holy God when it is based upon one's works or one's being or one's nature? When is enough enough? When acceptance before God is based upon the work of Christ and his promise to all who believe, then one can have assurance of salvation because Christ isn't going to change, his righteousness is not going to change, and God is going to keep his promises. And so one can have absolute assurance when that's the foundation for his assurance. And then finally, um, number 14 is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that simply is that those who trust in Jesus Christ, those who are converted and trust in Jesus Christ, will persevere to the end due to the immutability of God's decrees, the fact that God has decreed from before the foundation of the world that he would save those whom he had chosen. And so they will persevere to the very end because of the immutability, the unchangeableness of God's decrees. Also due to God's unchangeable love, God's love does not waver, does not change because we are loved in Jesus Christ. His love does not waver for His Son 
Therefore, it will not waver for those who are in Christ. It's also due, the perseverance of the saints is also due to the fact that, that Christ's death and work upon the cross is efficacious. It is, it is absolutely sufficient. Uh, it, is, it is our only grounds for merit. It is in, as we have already said, it is in Christ, in Him alone. And He has already purchased our salvation. He has already died uh, and paid the debt of hell for us. And so, we would in effect, if we went to hell, we would in effect, there would be two payments for that one debt. Christ paid for it. And I paid for it, which is, again, in common uh, uh, terminology uh, called double jeopardy, having to pay twice for the same crimes. And uh, Christ suffered. If he, in, de- in fact, suffered and paid the penalty, then, then it is paid in full. We will never have to pay it ourselves. Um, also due to the fact of the Spirit of God will persevere because of the, the Spirit of God uh, who has been given to us, who abides and dwells within us. The Holy Spirit will see to it, who is almighty, who is all-powerful, who will see to it that we persevere in faith. He will uh, build us up so that we will. And then... Um, uh, due to the nature of the, of the covenant of grace, due to the nature of the covenant of grace, that this is made, this covenant to rescue and redeem us, to save us, is made between Christ, between God and His Son. And when the Son fulfills the terms of the covenant, those for whom He fulfilled them will secure the benefits of that particular covenant. They will secure them. Now, needless to say, this condemns the Arminian and Antinomian view of once saved, always saved. Uh, that you, now, we believe that once one is truly converted, he will always remain converted or saved. But encompassed in that view is very often the view that you can become uh, converted and then live like the devil. Live any way you want to live from that point on. But because at that one point you made a decision for Christ, it doesn't matter how you live from that point on. That is not what this doctrine teaches. To the contrary, it teaches because of all of these reasons that we have stated, not only Will you be saved at the very end, but God will cause you to persevere in the faith. Not sinless perfection, not faultless. As to your walk, many Christians uh, fall into very serious sins, as we see in the Bible. But God will not allow them to fall from grace, to fall from trusting Him to fall from faith in Jesus Christ, even though they may temporarily fall into very grievous sins, as Peter did as well, as David 
as Jonah, who uh, turned his back on the Lord and went the other direction, and many other uh, saints in the in the scriptures. And so that is not what this doctrine is teaching that one can can live a lawless life. Well, those are the doctrines that we uh, will cover this evening, and uh, I believe we'll need one more week to finish our our study through the through the uh, uh, confessional. Uh, doctrines. Are there any questions that you have uh, this evening before we uh, close in prayer? Yes, Ian? Going back to sanctification. Yes. Will we ever be able to say that we are righteous? And will not ever sin again? In this life, no. Will we ever be able to say it? Yes, when we're glorified. But that would not be on our own merit. Nothing is on our own merit, no. It's all uh, based on the merit of Christ. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? All right, let's close. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.